0: Welcome to the Think for Yourself Podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mansharmani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now over to Dr. Mansharmani. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to this 15th episode of the Think for Yourself Podcast. In this episode, I'll be sharing the audio portion of my webinar interview with Frank Cessno. Frank is one of the most accomplished journalists in the world and served as White House Correspondent as well as Washington Bureau Chief for CNN. He's interviewed dozens of heads of state, including five or six different U.S. presidents, and is one of the most accomplished questioners in the world. In fact, he wrote a book about it called Ask More. Uh, It's a wonderful book that I highly recommend all of you go purchase and read. It will make you a better asker of questions. And so let's just turn to the interview with Frank. Thank you everyone for joining. I am thrilled uh, today to have Frank Cessno uh, with me. Uh, Frank is the former Washington bureau chief, former White House correspondent for CNN, uh, and currently is the director of the George Washington uh, University School of Media and Public Affairs. And so, uh, before we get into my conversation with Frank, uh, I get a little bit of a plug: uh, available for 19.95. Actually, I think it's a little more. Uh, might be 21.95 with shipping. Uh, my new book is in fact available. Uh, Amazon has had some supply chain issues, so they do not have it in stock. At least last I looked, uh, but it is available in other places, including Barnes and Noble. Uh, bookshop has had varying degrees of availability, but. For sure, Barnes and Noble has it. Uh, And so I encourage you uh, to buy a copy if you haven't yet. Um, Little replay, uh, a listing of the people we've had uh, in terms of context, and the replays are all available on my website. So just manshuramani.com, they are links. Uh, So last week we had the CEO of Raytheon Technologies, uh, Greg Hayes. Before that, we had the chairman of Peter Kiewit and Sons, uh, which is Bruce Grucock. Bruce is uh, someone I've gotten to know very well. And uh, his among his claim to fame is, aside from having run one of the most successful construction companies, is he's Warren Buffett's landlord, at least as of today. Um, and then we had Reince Priebus uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, Republican side politics. Uh, we had Apollo Robbins talk about uh, focus and focus management. Um, We had Jim Grant talk about the economy, the Federal Reserve, and uh, what you might describe as lack of sobriety in central banking. Um, We had Kishore talk to us about China uh, and US-China relations. Uh, Before that, we had Tom Petrie talking oil, and interestingly enough, uh, his prediction on May 1st that oil would rapidly get to the high 30s and sort of stabilize in that high 30s to low 40s has proven exactly accurate, Uh, and that was really fascinating. Uh, We had General Robinson before that. Uh, Her interview is available. Uh, That's had a lot of downloads uh, and replays. And then we, of course, started with Dr. Khan uh, talking about pandemics and the next pandemic and... Uh, I'm still sort of haunted by his statement that this is not the big one, that there is a risk of a bigger one. Um, And so uh, another replay that I encourage you to watch if you haven't. But more importantly, uh, today uh, we are here with Frank uh, and we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, his career, more about the current state of the world, the current state of media, uh, et cetera. And he is of course the author of this book, Ask More, um, which I am, happy to tell you is a fabulous read, worth reading. Although I do feel, Frank, a little bit like a lab rat here in the sense that <laughs> I'm asking, I, I have the book on how to ask someone questions and run a, a good interview, and yet I'm asking the author of the book those very same questions. So uh, before we begin, let me just share with everyone how I had a chance to meet you. Uh, and so a little reading again from Think from Think for Yourself, Uh, I had the pleasure of, uh, uh, in the book, describing the importance of asking questions. And I describe, I say one of the world's best questioners is Frank Cessno, a former news anchor, White House correspondent, and Washington bureau chief for CNN. Cessno has had the chance to interview many of the world's most accomplished leaders and experts. He's asked questions of US presidents and other heads of state, and currently serves as a director of the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And here's the part where it connects the dots to me. And it's not just because I had to endure being questioned by him (laughs) in front of hundreds of people at a conference that I know he's a great questioner. It's also because he's literally written a book on the power of questions. And don't ask if the book is worth reading. That, in fact, is a dumb question. Of course it is. So, Frank, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it and thank you for um, citing it like that in your book. I'm honored. And I I think thinking for yourself is a very timely piece of work now. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that in this conversation as
0: well. We will. So um, because I don't want to go by the script that you put in here of how to ask questions, clump questions in appropriate topics, I'm going to be a little more random to keep you on your toes, uh, if that's okay. So I want to start with something that I think you uh, will appreciate, but I'm going to suggest a couple of phrases, possibly one word, uh, topics, and you can give me your one word reaction to them, if that's okay. Uh, I know this is something you've done with others, so. Yes, (laughs) I (laughs) have. Well, let's start with Fox News.
1: Um, Arm's length? Twitter. Um... Cool But Dangerous. CNN. News. Taxes. <laughs> Death.
0: <laughs> Politician.
1: Um, mostly misunderstood. Police. Um, very troubled. Civics. Um...
0: Ignorance. COVID. Uh, epic. And lastly, one I'm sure you were expecting. Trump. Dangerous. All right, there we go. We've got at least a starting ground to talk about a bunch of different topics. So thank you for doing that, I know it's right out of your playbook. Uh, yeah. in terms of, uh, I think it was with uh, Nancy Pelosi that I did you did it with that? Nancy
1: Pelosi. And I did it with Nancy Pelosi because she um, can be long winded. And I thought it might be an interesting way to establish a dynamic. You have now established a dynamic. I am in your capable hands.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's do this. Let's talk a little bit about um, your interviewing of US presidents. And maybe we can start there. Uh, so, is it five different heads of states? Yes. Uh, five different presidents, excuse me, other heads of state. Um, any commonalities?
1: Well, the big commonality, actually, in a way, it's a little bit like the board association game we just played. Um, You have um, massive amounts of information and huge nuance and complexity, um, but you have very limited time, and you're trying to elicit a comment from someone who is probably the most guarded, poll-tested, focus-grouped person on the planet. And so the biggest challenge is, how do you get, you know, sitting president to, a shred of authenticity, Mm -hmm. to um, an acknowledgement of process and thought, uh, to an an explanation of um, the trade-offs, I mean, think of a president's job, whether you're raising taxes or lowering taxes, whether you're telling people to wear masks or not, whether you're telling them that there's a a health emergency in the case of COVID, or we need to reopen the economy because otherwise people are going to get broke. Will be broke, every single thing is a trade off. Well, how does a president make a decision? How does a president weigh those trade offs? Who is a president listening to? Um, so I would say that the most challenging thing um, with the president is just the sheer volume of stuff that you might want to ask and engage, and the, 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 the narrow time frame. <laughs> the toughest one I did was, with, was when I interviewed Bill Clinton was out in San Diego, he had gone out to San Diego to, de- to deliver a race speech, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. And the White House, in their infinite glory, um, decided that they would let the president, they would offer the president as an interview to all the network anchors. They were all out there. And you got five minutes. Just five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah. So let's think about that now. You're going to talk to the president of the United States who just delivered a speech on America's original sin, probably the toughest single issue that we deal with as a culture. And Mm -hmm. you've got five minutes. Oh, and by the way, there's all the other stuff that's raging in the world. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's really hard because the president knows what the president wants to say, it doesn't matter what you ask, they're going to to say something. And you're trying to bring it back and focus it so that you can get something out of that really tough. George Bush, I was uh, uh, when uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, I was offered an interview, I was traveling, I was the pool uh, correspondent, Uh, right in the middle, for those who remember, Um, of the big standoff with Panama and Manuel Noriega uh, when the United States was trying to get Noriega out of power. And the president's press secretary came to me and said, Frank, um, would you be interested in an interview with the president? Not being a good, you know, self-respecting correspondent, I said, no, not really. Who wants to interview the president? I said, of course. (laughs) And he said, all right, well, would you agree to only ask questions about Panama? And I said, you know, I can't do that. You know that I'm not going to agree to ground rules like that was that and so he said well i get it and the the logistics were tough we didn't do it i was on the i was on air force one that day as part of the pool and we had that interview i had a one-on-one interview with him subsequent to that but um you know there there are always just enormous and really really hard trade-offs time focus how much follow-up sure where's it going to go
0: sure um so just because I got this last word association request uh, that came in here, I'm going to throw in one more uh, phrase to get your uh, one-word reaction. Apologies for the disruption, but I know I can't go by the playbook, so we're going to keep you on your toes. All right, uh, word association with uh, Chinese Communist Party.
1: Uh, a threat. Uh, you know, it's look what's happening in Hong Kong right now. They are they are steamrolling over what remains of democracy. Uh, look at the intellectual property right theft issue that we have. I, I went to China some years ago. I was leading a group of graduate students. And um, we had this moment in class where the Chinese professor with his students, and me with my students, had an opportunity to engage. He lectured. I did the Socratic method back and forth. One of the students turned to, to another and said, what's he you know, relation to me? What's he trying to do to get us to argue? I was in the Shanghai Media Group. They were very proudly showing me around in their TV studios and they had blast pra- uh, brass plaques on the door. Censorship room number one, censorship room number two. Mm-hmm. The Communist Party has been immensely successful in China in terms of lifting people out of poverty into a middle class, but it is all built around commonality of thought, suppression of expression, and that's and and it it's that threat which we need to manage which we're not doing very well right now in my estimation needs to be managed economically diplomatically militarily across the board it's an immensely complicated issue because of the power and the rising
0: power of china sure sure i want to come back to that frank but you raised a really interesting topic here about control of information uh one might go so far as to even add to that to say disinformation at times Um, There were, of course, um, events relating to this concept of disinformation in our 2016 election process, and there is increasing concern about uh, the information flow, the authenticity, the truth, and accuracy, especially in a time of Twitter, if you will, uh, going into this current election cycle. Thoughts, worries, concerns, strategies?
1: Thoughts, lots, worries, more. Um, Concerns, wow. Strategies, whew. (laughs) Uh, At uh, George Washington University last year, we were fortunate enough to get a $5 million grant from the Knight Foundation. And we set up something called the Institute for Data Democracy and Politics. And we're doing a series of forums. In fact, I just did one yesterday where we're um, engaging people who are right in the middle of this both people on the front lines of disinformation, people who have felt the wrath and the horrors of disinformation being targeted, um, and lawmakers. So in our first forum, I had an opportunity to talk to Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and the bottom line of her comments was to call on the companies, corporations around the world that have spent billions and billions of dollars enriching Facebook and other social media platforms, particularly with respect to Facebook, to withhold and and it's and there is something of an advertisers kind of rebu- you know revolt. Uh, the question revolves around what people at Facebook have said. You know, being arbiters of the truth. You know, what role does the platform have in stopping disinformation? Because who makes that decision and where is the line and how do you decide? And the the, the, the challenge is in. The sort of algorithmic amplification of disinformation. If something is false, but people love it, you know, whether it's a cat parachuting from you know an <laughs> airplane or the worst inf- disinformation around COVID. And and you know, there's stuff like aspirin will help you, you know, sure. will, will stop COVID. Uh, another one that if you're African American, you can't get this disease. I mean, these things are just flat out false. What is the role and responsibility? Well, it should be to, to stop this stuff. Yeah. So I, I think from the, 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 the challenge here and the strategy both is to is to really seriously grapple with what is the responsibility of governments and of social media platforms in a world of free speech sure. of responsible speech. Yep. In a world where there's more information, more accessible to more people, more quickly than ever in human history. Yep. To make sure that we don't disinform disinform ourselves into the ground. Yeah, And I uh, think that's a real threat.
0: Yeah, look, I agree with you, Greg. I want to go deeper on the social media topic. But, you know, you and I have also talked in the past about the role of the producer of information. But then, as I've suggested, the role of the consumer in absorbing the information. I mean, one way is to try to prevent this incentive scheme that's organized around clicks, reshares, likes, I, I don't know, whatever, a thumbs up, emoji, all the things that they do to give yeah, you yeah, that, yeah. that dopamine drip. But the other thing is to just be more mindful about consuming information. I mean, is there something we can do as consumers that you would recommend?
1: Well, there's a lot, you know, and I've, I've spoken and written about this in the context of journalism, right? So when I started in journalism, there were executive producers and managing editors and, you know, executive editors. And they were the gatekeepers. If I had a story, I had to get it through my editor. He said, well, who are your sources on this? And do you have a second source? And tell me, I know it's an unnamed source. You need to tell me who it is. When I was a bureau chief at CNN, I, for anybody who might remember, Get Smart, the old show, it was the cone of silence. (laughs) And I had what I called the cone of silence with with my reporters. If they had an anonymous source, we would respect that, but I would close my door and I'd say, for your protection and for ours and for vetting, you need to tell me who your anonymous source is. And they would do that. And if they couldn't because it was too sensitive, we probably wouldn't put it on the air. That vetting yeah. doesn't exist anymore. I mean, the, the, those gatekeepers in a world of social media literally don't exist. So, consumers, news consumers, consumers have to be their own gatekeepers. How do you know the information you're getting is accurate? Before you hit share and engage and blast it out to your networks, how do you know that you're not gonna be complicit in disinformation? What is the accountability for you as an individual if you are? Um, so there are all kinds of things that people you know, talk about, and, and, but I think that whether it's from you know, the very early days of school, where we teach media literacy on through some of the tools that we engage people with. And that, again, the social media platforms we'll, we'll, we'll use. Um, we are all gonna have to recognize that we've got much, much more responsibility while also recognizing that it is complete pie in the sky to think that everybody's gonna do that. Sure. You know, we're not gonna,
0: the we're not gonna wish this away. Is there any hope of a Walter Cronkite coming back? No. No, of no, some no, 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 trusted, curated, you know, I understand there'll always be the, the negative, sort of the, the uncurated content, and that yeah. will continue indefinitely. But surely there's an opportunity for someone to step forth and be the curated, trusted source.
1: I, I certainly think, Vikram, that there are going to be curated and trusted sources. But I think the possibility that there's going to be a single person where so many eyeballs are focused yeah. at a given time just doesn't reflect the reality of the world in which we live. You know, there is CNN, and there is Fox, and there is CNBC, and there is PBS, and there is ABC, and there is Axios, and there is Vice, and there is Breitbart. So the audience has the word, you know, the term we use, as you well know, the term we use in media is disaggregated. The audience has disaggregated. And this has also led to the polarization, because as as people disaggregate, they go to the media platform that most resonates with where they themselves come from. Sure. And so we need to be very mindful about how we expose ourselves to different ideas. Um, we need to beat the crap, I think, out of the out of the traditional media networks and and properties and news organizations, so that there is a sense of public service at a time when it doesn't exist formally the way it used to when there was an FCC and a fairness doctrine and all this other kind of stuff. Um, we're in a we're just in a very noisy, loud world. In some ways, it's reverted to the way. It was before all this, when you know there were broadsheets and they belonged to political parties, and candidates had their own op-ed I mean, pages. And that, I mean, Alexander Hamilton, had, you know, was his own publicist. Um, so the difference, though, now of course, is that it's so instant. The audience is so huge, yeah. and the algorithms and the um, technology reinforces this, and in a, in a very, very challenging and at times disturbing way.
0: Yeah, yeah. In terms of the social media uh, amplification, distortion, the the megaphone in everyone's hand, et cetera, um, you know, there is a fair amount of information about governmental manipulation in terms of bots that will amplify certain things, et cetera, so that they suddenly trend or or, or get noticed by more. Is there a role for government to regulate some of these things? Like I know that at one point there was a suggestion that you remove the like button or you remove the number of views button or the, you know, get rid of the metrics so they're not available to all, you know, eliminate the concept of, uh, of, uh, of amplification, if you will, uh, thereby undermining some of the algorithms that can choose what you see based on data that is manipulatable.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the the issue of government regulation is a very interesting and challenging one, of course, the Europeans are far ahead of us in the United States, we, we, we seem to have hung up on our amendments, whether it's the first or the second, and we don't want to touch. Them. Um, and, and yet, Section 230, which is the uh, part of the law that exempts um, the social media platforms, for example, from liability. that which is carried through their pipeline you know there are plenty of people who are saying well that should be repealed or that should be amended or that should be addressed The, the social media platforms are trying to do things about it twitter's in a very different place than facebook twitter's taking material down and labeling things as overt disinformation whereas in fact it was just in recent days stories about how zuckerberg and facebook went out of their way to try to accommodate and work with the trump administration and sort of loosen their restrictions in ways they've got a backlash from their own employees and advertisers now as, as partly as a result of this. Look, you asked a minute ago about a new Walter Cronkite. There won't be a new Walter Cronkite, but there could be and should be. And this is not a partisan comment that I'm going to make. This does not relate to political party. But there needs to be a culture of leadership in this country from the president on down that yeah. does not capitalize on division, turn any criticism into an accusation that it's media and fake news, and that helps people understand what all of our obligation is to one another as fellow citizens, to be well and responsibly informed. That doesn't mean to accept all kinds of coverage if it's unfair or sensational or tawdry or superficial. I mean, go after it that way. Yeah. but. um helping people understand and the covid the covid case is a is a perfect example right the 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 communication from leaders at all levels should be simply know the facts know the science take care of yourself take care of those around you
0: yeah
1: right and we don't even have that so that's that's to me the first place to start
0: yeah and part of it might even be Frank, from from my perspective and i don't want to impose this framing even on on you but i'm curious how you think about it with the explosion of information and access to information there's been increasing siloization so more specialization uh, of individuals and so we turn to these experts and defer our thinking in some of these cases and the way i think about it is we've bounced like a ping pong ball between complete deferral to experts and complete dismissal of experts surely there's a role in the middle of being able to tap into information and having appropriate leadership perhaps guide us into which sources are useful at what times.
1: Well, it's a really interesting point. It's actually you know, what I wrote about in my book with respect to experts, which is, yeah. um, you know, even if you're talking to an expert and that can be intimidating, you should not be intimidated To ask the questions you need to ask to determine that expert's expertise. What he or she knows, where it comes from, how and why, what's the uncertainty within that level of information, what they don't know. And and so you can kind of cross examine the experts to determine which piece of expertise from this expert do I feel most comfortable with. You know, it's in the old journalistic parlance, it's, you know, what are your know your sources and then be able to attribute both to them and the information that they cite so you can go back and figure out whether it's real or bogus or not. Are they ignoring something, whatever. Um, you know, others have written about the death of expertise. I don't believe in that at all. I don't think we have a death of expertise. I think we have a surplus of expertise. And it's like, as you talk about and write about it, it's up to us to figure out how we navigate through that.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And it's. And it's really challenging but you know we do it all the time right you're going to buy a car you read magazine articles you talk to your neighbors you talk to the dealer you take a test drive think about how you navigate the expertise to buy a car your doctor tells you you've got a problem if you if you don't if you really trust your doctor and your doctor has a great track record with you you recognize the expertise and say okay doc i'll I'll stop you know eating 12 pounds of salt a day you're probably right <laughs> but you know i mean we do it at some level but it, we have to do more of it because of just exactly what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. Let's turn uh, back to some of the more interesting interviews you, you have done over the course of your career, uh, Frank, but one of them that I would love to hear you describe. And I think others on this uh, webinar would also appreciate is talk to us about Yasser Arafat (laughs) uh, and your interview with him there. I thought that was a great section of the book. So that's why I wanted to bring it up.
1: And I think it's, I appreciate that because I think I may refer to it as one of the worst interviews I ever did, so thank you. Uh, no, it was amazing. Um, look, going into any interview, you have to be prepared. You have to know what you want, what, what, what your outcome is going to be, and how you're gonna get that, the questions that you're gonna ask to put that together. And that's true for anything. That's true for a media interview. It's true when you're talking to your doctor or you're talking to your kid who's been out till three in the morning when they're not supposed to be. I tried to be prepared for uh, Arafat. He he was in this country at a very um, delicate time. There was, we had the Second Intifada, the uprising in the region. And what was happening, which was particularly ugly then, was Palestinian children were going out, young kids were going out and throwing rocks and various other things at at, uh, Israeli troops and they were getting shot and killed. And there was a particularly horrific video capture of that, of of, of a child huddling with his father uh, getting shot. It was not clear where the bullets came from. But there was an allegation from many that Arafat was using this imagery and was using the children in a way as a propaganda point. And he'd been called on by all sorts of people from around the world to call on parents and children to keep the kids in for kids to be kept out of this and he had refused to do it. He comes to Washington. We're sitting in front of the Council on Foreign Relations. There are cameras from all over the world and I know I want to ask him about this. I also know that he will almost certainly not respond in a in a very positive way but i felt that the question needed to be asked um and i spent days talking to experts just trying to frame that question don't dwell on the past don't frame it in the past somebody told me Um, acknowledge his moral authority somebody else told me um he is President, Chairman of the of the PLO. Make sure you call him by that name, so that you know. Engage, in, engage the future. These children are your future. You know all these things. So I did this, and he exploded. Yeah. And he stood up next to me, and he glared down at me, and he waved a finger, and he said, "Are without answering the question, said, are you calling us animals?" Yeah. And I thought he was going to walk out of the room. This was at the Council on Foreign Relations. The door was to my left. He was sitting to my right. There was a coffee table in front of us. And I thought, he's just going to walk out. He's going to storm out of here. And I'm telling you, Vikram, I had spent days thinking about this and crafting this. And I, Anyway, um, so what I did is I I slowly crossed my leg and I slowly slunk down to kind of fill the space between me and the coffee table so he couldn't just walk (laughs) right out.
0: He couldn't leave. Yeah.
1: And he finally sat down and, and we continued. Um, the tricky thing in, in this particular interview is I was presiding is what they call it at the Council on Foreign Relations. So I was really facilitating some Q&A from me first, not, not meant to be explosive like this, to then open it up to the audience, to the members sure. and those who were there. And so I was not there to be the, the, the network anchor man, yep. sure. mean guy. Sorry, though, I had to ask this question. Anyway, it, it, finally, somebody else in the audience asked a question and, and followed up on it. Citing that it was you know, one of the people who had called on Arafat to do this was the Queen of Sweden. Like, call the Queen of Sweden, right? You know, it might have been more interesting if the question had not come from me, more effective if it had not come from me when I posed it to him. But Chairman Arafat, the Queen of Sweden is calling on you. Fill in the blanks. So anyway, it was a very tense moment, and it was not a productive one. And yep. um, uh, but I'm glad it happened. Yeah. You know, it, I, I've interviewed a lot of people that are that have been very, very, very difficult, uncomfortable interviews like that. I interviewed David Duke, former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, when he was running for governor. Yep. I had to figure out, okay, am I going to acknowledge him as a run-of-the-mill candidate? Or how do I ask him about his racism and his, and his role in the past? This is what you do, yeah. right? This yeah. is what you do. When, when, and so, as I, as you and I know, we've talked about this. There are different types of questions, right, that are aimed for different things. There are questions of accountability Yep. that are confrontational by nature and necessary.
0: Yeah. Frank, do you think the journalists of today have this sort of moral compass, almost that I sense in you and some of the some of the folks, uh, and not sort of pre social media, you know, true dedicated journalists, where they really do want to expose, independent of political persuasion or you know partisan issues, that they really want to get an issue and put someone on the spot and get that accountability.
1: Yes, I I, I think there's a lot of that left, Vikram. I really do. I mean, I think it's about you know, people go into journalism from whatever ideology they come from, and they're mostly liberal. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna say they're mostly center left-leaning, and we can have a conversation about why that might be, just as why is it that most people on Wall Street are center right-leaning and conservative. I mean, But anyway, uh, because they want to tell a story, they want ex- to go someplace and expose something. I think what makes it so much harder for journalists today to do this is yeah. we have all but ripped away the time for deliberation, for thought, for reflection, whether you're a journalist or whether you're in the audience. It's like, boom, you know, you've got your alert on your phone. Boom, you're the journalist and you're supposed to tweet before you post. Boom, you know, you're, you're engaging. We have audience engagement, right? Sure. Um, so I think it's much harder to do that. Uh, it's also much harder. <laughs> When I joined CNN and I, and for years, I was told, we don't have stars, the news is the star. Yep. There were no stars. I also got yelled at, like really yelled at one time, for, ready? For asking about our ratings.
0: Uh, yeah, that's right. We How talked about-
1: dare you ask me about your ratings? I don't care about ratings. I don't want you to care about ratings. We don't care about ratings. Don't ever ask me that again. It was just after Fox and MSNBC had gone on the air, Yep. But it was before Fox had overtaken CNN in the ratings.
0: Gotcha. So imagine you're back in the CNN newsroom right now. Perish the thought. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, uh, how important are ratings?
1: They're important. I'm sorry to say. They're important yeah. because uh, that's how advertising is determined. It drives dollars. That's how yep. corporate investment yep. is determined. That's how... Yep you know, bonuses are determined, and that unfortunately drives certain certain judgments in, in, in ways too. So I prefer to think of it, though, as a great challenge. Um, and, you know, what comes first, the story or the ratings? Yeah. Um, I think a great storyteller can take that, that picture of a fox over your shoulder there and turn it into something that's, you know, yeah. riveting yeah. or horribly boring. You know, think of, think of when you were in college or when you were in school. You have two teachers, two professors, they're both teaching about the Civil War. One of them makes it just boring as hell. It's memorizing dates and names and it means nothing. And the other one is like, oh my God, it's like alive, right? That's storytelling. That's what journalists should do. And that's how they should engage the ratings and putting the story first, not the ratings first.
0: Got it. So what's Planet Forward? Talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, I started this about a little over 10 years ago at George Washington University because I thought that the power of this device um, and young people and the platform of colleges and universities could be magic, and Mm -hmm. they are. And so Planet Forward is a multimedia platform where we um, challenge and engage students across the country and around the world to tell the stories of ideas and research and innovation that literally can move the planet forward. That And understanding that that kind of storytelling is empowering both to you as the individual, it's like you reaching an audience through this, you know, webinar to the um, ideas and the best practices that it can spread. So we have um, dozens of consortium colleges who are part of us. We have Planet Forward Correspondence. We have a contest every year for the best storytelling in different categories. Um, about food, energy, water, the built environment, biodiversity, public health, yep about um, how we can be a better world. And I wanted with that framing to capture the excitement, to capture the invention, to capture the innovation, to capture the genius of humanity. Yeah, It's a little bit like solutions journalism, but I hope with less of a label around it, sure. um, but it's, it's phenomenal. And, and you know what, when I look at climate change, when I look at all these problems, we're capable of solving these problems. We've got the intellect and the creativity. It's just a matter of political will.
0: Yeah. Well, I remember that was one of our first conversations. I think after, either before or after, I got on stage with you, uh, we were talking about the class I was teaching at Harvard, which was called Humanity and Its Challenges. And then ah. we forward, and I still think there's a nice overlap in terms of topical focus there. Yeah, so. We should do
1: something together like that. I, I'm this. <laughs> um,
0: So. Before we transition to some of the more current affairs that I wanna uh, get on your list here, I wanna remind everyone, feel free to submit questions. I've seen a couple questions come in. A couple of you are texting them to my phone. That's fine too, feel free, I'll look at my phone. Um, but Frank, what's your favorite movie?
1: Well, I have lots of favorite movies, but I'm now doing something with my 94-year-old father, who unfortunately is locked down because of COVID, and other family members, and we're having movie night. And um, we all watch a movie separately and then we come together to discuss it and we take turns deciding whose you know, whose movie it is. So my father's movie and the most recent movie I watched was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Jimmy Stewart, 1939. And it's it's wonderfully dated, but it's also incredibly relevant. Um, idealistic politician set against the backdrop of corruption and greed and gridlock, uh, questions about the use of the media and whether it can be used and abused, um, the notions of idealism. It's it's just this brilliant movie, and I watched it, and it's both sobering because you realize, think about what we were where we were in 1939, right? Yeah. Great Depression, Hitler on the move, you know, huge inequality in America, and yet this kind of Frank Capra like Um, idealism personified by this very young Jimmy Stewart. Love it, recommend it, go back and watch it.
0: Excellent, good. All right, so I'm going to turn to one question that just came in here. Um, So the question is, Frank, a recent article on Vice asked a simple question. Is the U.S. a failed state? Parentheses are headed quickly in that direction. Thoughts? Uh,
1: We're not a failed state, but we are a challenged state right now uh our um public support for our institutions confidence and trust in institutions is very low that's very worrying our leadership is a divisive leadership uh right now and i say that people may dispute this but i say that not as a partisan uh observation but as an observation from one who has covered republicans democrats conservatives liberals all his life uh, i've never experienced and seen um a politician at this certainly not at the presidential level who is as Polarizing and divisive uh, as as uh, Donald Trump is. Sure. Now, are we a failed state? No, not at all. Uh, yet, <laughs> we could be. Um, but if we move through this, this will be um, an expression of democracy correcting itself. Yeah. Uh, if 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 I believe though, if if Donald Trump is reelected. Um, Where that could take this country is a very, very divisive and dangerous place. And then whether we become a failed state becomes a a, a very, very big question of how institutions respond, how individuals respond, how states, the sort of decentralized power structure that the country is built on, sort of federalist system. Um, But right now, um, I guess I'd answer it this way if you forced me to put it onto a bumper sticker. Um, We're not a failed state but we may be a paralyzed state right now. We're sort of locked in, in time because of our politics, because of COVID, because of a number of other things. And we are not leading globally, we're not leading here at home in the ways that we have been accustomed to seeing over our lifetime.
0: Yep, yep, nope. Um, thoughtful answer for sure, Frank. Uh, favorite, favorite book? Let me switch that, because I've got a lot of questions, but I'm trying to sneak in the fun ones, too. Yeah, the fun
1: ones, yeah, right, so it's not. My wife says, could you please stop talking to me about all this stuff when I come down in the yeah. morning for my morning coffee? <laughs> Give me 15 minutes, anyway. Um, well, again, I'm sort of responding to the moment. Um, and I would say that uh, John Meacham's The Soul of America, which I read recently, which I highly recommend. I think John is amazing and the soul of america is actually a very encouraging book because it 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 takes us through our the moments of crisis that we have lived through in this country and shows how we've gone into them where they've taken them take they've taken us and and how we've you know responded to them this is not the first moment of crisis so I'm, I'm looking for inspiration these days.
0: Yeah, yeah no, fair enough.
1: <laughs> and, and it ain't easy to find, but I think, uh, I think Meacham's book, Soul of a Nation, is one that I would recommend for both just you know, great, great um, history and great storytelling and um, some important inspiration.
0: All right, so here's the next question. Uh, how much does bias affect news reporting? In your opinion, is bias in the news intentional to guide the public to certain conclusions or subconscious biases of journalists and their research support? Dot, 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 one can even say, you know, how much is the tail wagging the dog, so to say, with the ratings and letting the inmates effectively run the asylum by letting the the, the observers decide what they want to hear. So it's a very
1: complicated question and it's actually a fascinating one. I've taught classes on media bias. I have not taught people how to be biased. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I <mean>, be <maybe> really <laughs> clear about that. Look, there are, first of all, let me start this by saying, <clears throat> Um, I would like to submit that the most plural word in the English language now is media. <laughs> okay the New York Times is not The Wall Street Journal is not CNN is not Fox is not Breitbart is not um, Alex Jones. okay, Infowars. They're all media and what what often happens is people without meaning to say, well, what about bias in the media? What about um, you know, the, the the business model of the media? What about people who go into the media? The media is all these things, and so they're very different. So there are very different biases that people bring. Um, do we, is there a huge bias in the media that democracy is good? Well, yeah, that's a bias, isn't it? That capitalism is fundamentally a healthy thing? That's a bias. Um, that a particular policy or president, tax increase, abortion, same-sex marriage, whatever is good, bad, otherwise, those are different levels of bias. So I, I the answer is everybody brings bias. I mean, find me, a, find me a reporter from a particular nationality who covers their country at war and is biased in favor of their country at war. Right? That's a bias, right? So that's different from the the suggestions that we get from people that there's this kind of fine-tuned bias intended to persuade or convince. Um, And that does exist now in ways that are much more prevalent than than when I went into the business. Sure. Um, So I think the answer is yes, all of these levels of bias exist. At very professional, very good news organizations, they are aware of that bias and they address it both internally, operationally, and externally, so that they can engage that. Yeah. In some places, we've made it a lot worse. We've made it a lot worse. So you, you know, when you're looking at television or you're listening to the radio and a commentator is mixed with a reporter or a reporter is asked for an opinion, you blur those lines in ways that are really damaging. Do people understand the difference between the editorial page the op-ed page and the front page in the traditional newspaper or where it appears online and you're reading it on a a tablet or or any other mobile device? I don't think so, and there needs to be much more explanation for that so that people can, can wade through it. Bias is a problem, it's a challenge. It's also part of being human and it isn't gonna go away.
0: Sure. So I think this next question is fascinating. And I'm very curious to hear what your answer is. So does Frank have any simple and effective filters or tools you would suggest for us to help determine if a story is real versus fake? Like
1: question. Yeah. So Stanford researchers say, if you really want to be good at this, they, they, they have, they, they say, they call it reading laterally. So you open up a story and you open up other tabs as you go. So if someone is quoted, click on that person or do a search, are they really who they are? Uh, are they, You know, do you know where they come from? If a statistic or a, or a fact is cited and there's a link, open that link and see where that link is. Are they quoting another news organization? Are they quoting somebody who's just you know winging it, or is it a, a peer-reviewed paper? Is it a, is, you know which itself can be re, can be challenged after the fact, or is it this you know is it a stat from a census bureau? What can you make of that? Um, if you're looking at a story, look for a byline. Um, is is it a recognized journalist. If it's coming from a, um, a news organization, do you know the news organization? Cause now with Apple news and all these other kinds of things, you've just got things that could be popping up in your feed. Um, we talk a lot about being very wary of stories that, pl- that try to look for stories that are directly playing to emotions and fears. Those once upon a time we used to call it sensationalism, but something that is not providing that's not coming first with a straight set of, you know, data or information or a quote or something that happened but instead is going right for the fear jugular you know that may be that may be suspect um you certainly can look at fact checks whether it's snopes or factcheck.org or politifact these are very important fact checks and ways to Mm cross-reference so this is the the kind of cross-referencing that we need to do reading laterally whatever you want to call it part of being um, a responsible informed consumer now
0: Sure, so I think what you're saying, Frank, something that I've been pretty passionate about is the importance of breadth instead of depth. Uh, And as a consumer, you do want to have some extra attention paid to context and breadth. All of the pressures generally in society and education, for sure in academia, elsewhere, are really about narrowing, focusing, specializing, even in journalism. You know, journalists get a beat. They have to be focused on this domain. Now, I think journalism, lends itself towards more breadth, perhaps, because context matters, sources come from different areas, you triangulate different perspectives. But how can we as individuals develop that sense of context you're talking about, especially when we consume media, often with clicks that tunnel us right to the interest rather than, you know, I used to read physical, I still do read physical papers, I still read physical magazines, because the mere act of flipping the pages absorbs different topics how how can we be broader so that we can actually do what you're saying which is have some sense of the bigger picture
1: well i guess i might be a little self-promotional here (laughs) um (laughs) just use the the book title and that is ask more i mean i think we need to be not just consumers of information but challengers of information we need to be we, we need to bring always our curiosity and healthy skepticism Anything and and have a series of questions that we are constantly asking as we as we consume information. Where does this come from? Is there an agenda behind it? What other information is out there that I need to know? Is there a second or third opinion? Um, what is what is the you know the sort of original primary source uh, um, kind of genesis of, of this story? Um, how do I put myself in, into this place? Why is this person saying what, what they're saying? Uh, you know, I, and, and I think that, you know, sometimes it's gonna, those questions are gonna drive you toward more depth. Other times those questions will drive you to more breadth to get a wider view, a wider angle lens on the picture, right? It's like, a, it's just like being a photographer. Sometimes you want the telephoto lens because you want that super close up. But other times you want the wide angle because you need to see it in proper landscape. That's how you get a sense of where that little narrow picture actually fits. Right. Yep. Yep. So I, I, think that, you know, I refer to myself as a glass half empty optimist. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Fundamentally I'm an optimist and there's all this information we're gonna, but the glass is half empty and we have to be really, really careful, you know, yep. where, where this stuff is coming from. and sure. um, Going to, it takes more work.
0: Well, you know, Frank, one of the things you and I have talked about in the past, which I think might sir, be useful to hear you articulate the analogy now, is sort of the idea of an information diet, right? And sort of thinking about it. Those terms, I think that actually really works, and I think some of the folks on this webinar might appreciate hearing your description of it in those terms.
1: Well, going along with the glass half empty, which you have to drink from <laughs> often enough, is, no, I think of it very much like this. I think I I see our information diet much the same way as I see our nutritional diet, the food we eat. Okay, you and I and everybody knows what's good for us. Broccoli is better than potato chips, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, broiled salmon is better than fried chicken. Oh, but that fried chicken is so good. And those potato chips are so good. And the potato chips, by the way, are on every shelf. And they're very cheap. Yeah. And they're, they're, you know, they're layered with salt, which we know is addictive. And it brings us back for more. And our information is the same way. You know, our, the information that's out there, the preys on our emotions that engages our imagination it can be built on fear, it can be built on fury, it can be built on, on ridicule, but that's what that's what grabs you. It's why, there's a, it's why the traffic always slows down where there's an accident, even when it's on the other side of the highway and has nothing to do with the lanes you're driving. That's where we go and we do that with our diets as well. We have huge problems in this country with obesity and diabetes and and ill health driven by diet, but we've got all these labels. So the, (laughs) the glass half empty part here is, we can say all we want about how we're gonna need to consume information, label it, know what's nutritious for us, and consume it in different ways. But this stuff is, it's the junk food of our brain. And sometimes it's just fun and funny and we should, be guiltless okay every once in a while i love fried chicken yeah um but we're gonna have to be real about understanding that this is bad for our health overall
0: and over time so one of the things that um frank i've been involved with at harvard is helping think about some of the new general education curriculum um and one of the ways uh folks have been talking about at least in some of the academic administration circles is Posing it as a really thought provoking question and designing a course around it. So, one course that is being contemplated, in fact, I haven't been up to speed. Maybe it's been approved very recently in the past couple of weeks with COVID. I'm not in the flow as much uh, on campus, walking the halls, so to say. But one of the questions being posed as a class is Did the Civil War ever end? And, you know, given that we talked about race relations a little bit, given what's happening in the world today, given your experience with the folks like David Duke, et cetera, do you have thoughts specifically as to how our country can move forward on a topic as problematic as sort of race?
1: Well, first of all, can I just say, I I love that. I, that's so brilliant. You know, I mean, asking, damn. Okay, Guy who wrote the book on, on, on questions. You pose something in that way. It's provocative. It makes you stop and think. It forces you to reframe something instantly in your brain. Maybe you take a position and you're prepared to argue it, but you know it's going to be challenged by what you're going to learn. Maybe it makes you rethink things. Um, I, I, I just I think it's I think it's positively brilliant. I mean, how do we define war? Yeah. How do we define end? Um, you know. Um, um socrates would be proud um so i i i think that that you know my um co- the the coverage that i've engaged in and i was a history major and 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 when i was in college and so i've i've tracked this stuff very closely you know the answer is no the civil war didn't end. The, the the shooting stopped um you know lincoln famously said you know Malice toward none, charity toward all, and and you know, g- gave the, the generals their flags back, and here we are, you know, still wondering whether our bases should be named after the generals that seceded from the Union and fought and and fought troops. The, and and you can even ask, did the shooting end? Ask that of a of a black family who had a family member lynched. Ask that of a black family whose children could never, um, could not could not. Freely or safely go to school? Ask that of a family that, that has not had property to pass down through generations. Um, I think that, you know, probably what I worry about the most, and this comes to your notion too of breadth and depth how do we have a very difficult, nuanced conversation about anything? in a culture that is driven by instant communication and totally superficial and often um, destructive tweets, posts, and things like that? How do we talk about inequality? How do we talk about who gets what kind of health care? How do we talk about the role of guns in, in, in our society? Not just whether we have them, but how we have them and who has them, how they get them, how do we talk about race? These are all big, big questions. And just because I'm raising the issue doesn't mean I have answers to any of those things. But we know we need to engage them and come to some kind of consensus if we're going to move forward.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, No, I think it's a a very big issue, obviously, right? Barack
1: Obama, Barack Obama, and again, I'm not trying, I'm, I'm, I'm only citing him I can quote, Ronald Reagan, and I'll quote anybody, but I I like good quotes. Uh, And and Barack Obama talks a a lot about the arc of history. And I I believe in that. There is an arc of history. It doesn't mean it's all in one direction. It doesn't mean it's two steps forward and never one step back. Um, And that's what makes our journey both perilous and fascinating.
0: Yeah, so we are going to run out of time, sadly, but I do have a couple of questions that I want to try to. I'll be short. I'm sorry for being so long with you. That's okay. know what you were getting into here. (laughs) It's fabulous. Uh, So, what role might the media play if, in fact, we reconceive of our geopolitical environment as effectively a Cold War style dynamic, US v China, or you might even include Russia in that dynamic? Does the media have a role to play in helping? win this quote-unquote war?
1: Uh, I think the role that the media should play, and by media, I'm referring to here, professional journalism. Sure. People need to be informed. They need to know who is doing what, what the stakes are, what's what's at risk. What's actually happening in Ukraine? What's actually happening in Iraq? What's actually happening in Taiwan? Pick a place. You barely know if you're trying to consume American media. There needs to be more coverage of the world. There needs to be more thorough explanation of, of, of trends and, and things that are underway. And there needs to be a commitment to engage a spread of voices so people have a better understanding of, of, of as I say, what's at stake and what the options are.
0: Yeah. Um, last question, I'm gonna go to the audience then. We'll come back and wrap up. But uh, if there was no COVID, would the country be confronting the same paralyzing state that it's in now? without sports? Yes, there's sports, school, unemployment, economics, etc. Um, you know, people have no escape outlet other than to protest. Is that contributing sort of to these issues? Sort of sort of. take COVID out of the equation. Would we be as paralyzed as we are now?
1: No, we'd be paralyzed in different ways. You know, it's hard to imagine. It's just three or four months ago when we had three and a half percent unemployment and we were just dysfunctional <laughs> but we're, now we're dysfunctional and not working.
0: Normal course dysfunction, yeah. You no, know, I
1: mean, COVID has been devastating. You know, there are, there are you know, 130,000 as we speak people who have lost their lives. There are millions of people who have been infected. People's lives have been disrupted at every level. And it's driven home, you know, millions of people have lost their jobs and with that their health care. It's driven home the sense of inequality that we've got in this country because it's real. You know, if you lose a job, you lose your health care. That's brutal. If you, if you have a job and you're, you live paycheck to paycheck and that paycheck goes away, what happens? There's worries, you know. Um, no, this, I think this could, could be an epic shift. This could lead to tectonic plates changing under our feet. In the same way, depends how it plays out. We don't know yet. This is what, you know, we have to watch this, but the depression fundamentally redefined American politics and American life. It was years and years and it was you know compounded by a war where i'm desperately we're all desperately hoping we don't go anywhere near repeating history in that sense but one still gets the sense that there may be something so big here that engages so many people at so many different levels that there is big change that will come from this we'll see
0: yeah um i want to give you an opportunity to end on the uh the, the optimism side of the half empty glass Greg. <laughs> yes. So what positive message can you leave us with about the media, about the world, about America, about any of these dynamics? So, uh, so we can at least have that happy, uh, optimism side of this empty glass. Well, I
1: actually, i I actually honestly believe there's a lot to be optimistic about. I think this crisis is driving conversations like this. This crisis is making people examine what they believe and where they come from the horrible killing of George Floyd and the flood of people out onto the streets, Um, more diverse crowds than we have ever seen, young people joining with older people. Um, Young people make me optimistic. I work with them at the university, as do you. The ideas they've got, the connectivity they've got, the technology they've got at their hands is astonishing. What we have invented and what we're capable of as a species is astonishing. That's why I started Planet Forward, and it's filled with stories of ingenuity and invention and innovation. Um, human history is filled with pain and suffering. That is part of the human journey. And I think one of the weird things about our time is we somehow believe that we can just fix things. We can win the war on drugs, on and it's all done. Well, that's not what the human journey is about. The human journey is a constant struggle. We're in a moment of intense struggle right But I do think that with so much knowledge, so many brilliant people, so many committed people, people like yourself who are bringing important ideas to help others think for themselves, um, can inspire the kind of of change. It won't be easy. It won't be quiet. It won't be unanimous. There will be suffering that goes with the territory. We need to expect that. Last point. Sometimes I say to my kids and others, maybe we failed you as parents and generationally because we put helmets on your head and pads on your knees and your elbows. And we told you that whether you're on a bike or a skateboard or anything else, you won't get hurt. We gave you a trophy after every game. That's not human existence. We get hurt. And then we get up and maybe we're wounded and maybe walk, we walk with a limp for the rest of our lives, but we walk. Yeah. and that's what will come from this and that's why though my glass is half empty i'm still an optimist
0: excellent frank thank you so much thank you for uh for your friendship thank you for the great book which has proven useful for me uh thanks for taking the time today i think all of us really appreciate it and learn from this conversation so i really do want to thank you for that uh, i
1: thank you i thank you for what you're doing and the inspiration that you're giving and everybody should should think for yourself, (laughs) for themselves and buy your book and give them away to many friends as well.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Frank. And so for everyone else uh, on the webinar, that's still here, I see actually 95% of you are still on, which is great. Um, There will be a replay of this. I'll post it. And then I have been stripping the audio portion and posting it as a podcast as well. So uh, you can listen, -listen, re-listen, replay all of this wisdom from Frank many times if you'd like. (laughs) So anyway, Thank you again, everyone, and we'll be back in touch with the next series after a little break here uh, for some time, so thank you. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Think For Yourself podcast. I will be revisiting the podcast and webinar series come September, uh, so please stay tuned. And in the interim, if you haven't yet purchased a copy of my book, Think For Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, I highly encourage you to do so. It's available at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, as well as in Barnes & Noble stores. And if you're so inclined to support local or independent bookstores, I highly encourage you to visit bookshop.org as they provide not only a discount on the price of the book but they also provide some support for local independent bookstores so um, and again thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this series this spring and into the early summer and we'll be back with you in the fall